We've been bouncing from state to state this spring, finding the oldest plantations that are preserved and doing pieces on them for the college's history department. My husband, David, is one of the college professors for the history department and has taken an interest to shed more light on the daily lives of those that lived and worked on these plantations. For the next two weeks, we'll be in St. Francisville, Louisiana. I thought being here in the spring would be a light mix to the air, warm nights catching fireflies as they dance on front lawns, the smell of fresh florals blooming as bees buzz around collecting pollen and making honey. Typical things spoken about the South. However, once I open the car door, the hot, humid air hits me, moisture sticking to my skin, instantly making me sweat. The smell of dogwood trees surrounding us, making the air less than desirable. And do not even get me started on the pollen. Once I gather myself, I'm able to look out across the grounds, the draping moss that shrouds the house and cast shadow on this sunny day. A huge blue wraparound porch sitting on a white house. Windows and chimneys peeking through the top. As my husband and I walk closer, I immediately see the detail in the delicately crafted wrought iron, so well preserved. You never see this anymore. A darker shade of blue colors the shutters and doors, building a layered effect, welcoming you into the house. On the porch stands a woman. She waves as we walk closer, a big smile on her face. Welcome, I'm Laura. I'm one of the head groundskeepers here. We are so excited to have you both here. Please, follow me inside. Let's get out of this heat before it gets to us. She turns and opens the double doors to the house. The glass was covered in a privacy film, hiding its secret from the outside world. Crossing the threshold of the front entrance, we walk into a foyer with stairs leading up on our left and a sitting room on our right. The foyer extends to the back of the house, sunlight coming through the windows. We are told the master is upstairs and that's where we'll be staying. It's the only room that has recently had work done for the upkeep. All the other rooms are slated to be completed after our visit. Before I get out of your hair and let you start to explore, we have some ground rules. The AC is only on in certain areas of the house. Some rooms will feel hotter or colder, depending. Please keep the air set to no lower than 68. If it freezes over, it could cause an uncomfortable stay. Some doors are kept locked while there are guests in the house. If you're curious about a room or door, please let me know and we can schedule time to go into those areas. This is the original hardwood in the house. Please do not wear painted heel shoes. And try to remain in socks or bare feet, if possible. Speaking of the floors, there is a sealant on them that will cause moisture to look like a rusty red while it's drying. Please wipe any water or liquid off the floors as soon as you can. No smoking in the house, of course. Please let me know if there's anything else you may have questions about. Laura checks her phone and answers it, stepping onto the back porch. She looks angry as she talks, and we decide to give her some privacy, go get our bags out of the car, and begin settling in. Laura eventually meets up with us at the car, Andy David some keys. She says, there is something I gotta go do. I gotta go attend. So sorry for the short notice. These are the keys to the house. There's a notebook on the kitchen with some information on the house, phone numbers, good place to eat, good places to drink, all the important stuff. She winks. Your room is just upstairs. The doors are open. You'll be able to tell which one it is. Please call or text if you need anything. I'm sure we'll see each other again real soon. She gives a quick wave and scurries to the back of the house. David and I stare at each other. And David pulls a bottle of red from his bag. I didn't see him pack it. Let's pop this open and give ourselves a grand tour. We bring our items into the house, setting them down at the foot of the stairs. We meander around until we find the kitchen. We had to pass through the dining area of the bed and breakfast to get to it, but it's quaint. Just as Laura promised, there's a leather-bound notebook sitting on the counter. I open it to begin reading while David rummages through cabinets looking for a wine key. The notebook is handwritten, probably by Laura, in beautiful sweeping cursive. Amazing loops making the notebook look much older than it probably is. She has it so organized, divided into portions of the house, 
rules, places to eat, places to drink, and common items. I flipped to common items, all in alphabetical order. I skimmed the list, broom, coffee, glass, linen, towels, and there it is, wine key. I begin to say where it's located, but as I do, I hear the pop of a cork being pulled out of a bottle and glasses clinking. We gently clink our wine glasses together and enjoy the red as we examine the kitchen. We begin our tour, heading back to the entrance of the house. There are numerous rooms to cover in this area. We explore outside, the cabins, the gardens, and after about two hours, find ourselves sitting on the front porch, enjoying the cooler evening air that has begun to roll in. David looks over at me with a lazy smile on his face. He says, I'm starving. Let's order some Chinese food for delivery. It takes about half an hour, but our food is finally here. David and I stay on the porch eating the food. The sun has begun to set, and I see some lights begin to come into view from the trees, hovering down to the ground. As some time passes, more and more lights illuminate, dancing along the lawn. Fireflies. Between the Chinese food, heat, and wine, everything gets taken out of me. I am exhausted as I muster up all the energy I can to climb the stairs and head to bed. I sleep hard, dreaming of fireflies glowing in the moonlight. When I wake up, I'm alone in bed. I sit up and stretch, rubbing my eyes and thinking of coffee. I slowly get out of bed and walk downstairs, taking in more details of the house as I walk around. It's quiet and calm, morning sunlight peeking in through the windows. When I enter the kitchen, I see a note on the counter with a cup of coffee. Headed to the library. More coffee in the pot. This is cold. Love you. D. The coffee is still very warm. He must have just left. I take a sip and wonder what I'm going to do today. Something to make me feel better is cleaning. I like knowing that what I'm touching and sitting on hasn't been touched by numerous people. I start with dusting. My routine is normally dust, mirrors, sweep, mop, the kitchen, and lastly, bathrooms. I look for a duster and find all the cleaning supplies I can need in a closet. I'm not sure why, but I wasn't expecting a modern duster. I thought I would find an old feather duster. Well, this is easier. The house is cleaner than I expected, so dusting takes almost no time. Next, I start on the glass and mirrors. First the glass at the front of the house, then I move down to the windows at the back of the house, before realizing there's a mirror in the foyer. It's huge, and from what I can tell, it looks new. There's just a small layer of dust. I wipe as high as I can to get most of it. It looks great. I go about to the back of the house. By the time I finish those windows, I'll take a break and get something to eat. I walk towards the kitchen and look into the large mirror as I pass. While checking it out, I notice a handprint smudged on the glass. Must have done that while reaching up. I'll get it after I eat. Opening the fridge, I see there's food. I was worried there would be no food because I have no car, but there's ingredients to make a sandwich. While I'm pulling everything out of the fridge, I hear knocking, summoning me from the entrance. I yell that I'm coming to make my way over. I open the front door and see there's no one out there. I poke my head out and see no one on the porch. I walk onto the porch and see there's no cars or people. Must be imagining it. It's not very hot, so I eat my lunch on the back porch in the shade. Might as well get some fresh air today. I devour my sandwich and think I better wipe the mirror before I pass. With a napkin in hand, I wipe the smudge. I'm looking at myself as I begin wiping. After my arm comes down across the glass, I see someone else staring at me. Her skin is dark, an old-fashioned dress and green headdress covering her hair. I stop and look, their movement mimicking mine. I begin to touch my face, the reflection touching their face. Then the front door loudly opens, David startling me. I look over at him, then back to the mirror, just seconds between the two. And as I look back, I see myself again, in my pajamas, and messy hair in a bun. 
David asks about my day, and I begin to tell him about what I saw in the mirror. He thinks I'm joking with him at first. As he can tell I'm being serious, he goes to get his bag, pulls out a book, and shows me an image. It's a drawing of a woman, dark skin, in a green headdress, Chloe, written under the picture. I look up from the picture and tell him that's her. She was staring back at me from the mirror. David gives me a skeptical look and says maybe it was a dream. I explain it was happening while he was walking in the front door. There's no way I was imagining it. The details were too real, and I've never imagined anything like that before. After our conversation, I decide I just need to go on about my day, but I'm going to shut my eyes every time I pass the mirror. Of course, historical properties like this will always have ghosts, but I've never encountered one before. It must have been Chloe's ghost looking back at me. I try to relax outside for as long as possible, finally coming inside once mosquitoes start biting. I always forget how bad they are in the South. David has been in the kitchen working. The house is now dark while the sun sets. Momentarily forgetting about the mirror, I walk by to turn the lights in the foyer on. I betray myself and peek into it. As I stand there, in the dark, my reflection looks normal. I lean into the mirror, trying to see if she will reappear again. But it's just me. I give up and decide maybe I did imagine it. I turn to leave, heading to the kitchen. My reflection stays put, however, watching me from behind as I walk away. We eat dinner, David telling me more history of the house. I tend to not look at the history before coming, so I can listen as David uncovers and connects the history. It's fascinating and scary. I expected some horror, but not this deep. I lose my appetite and just want to crawl into bed. I read my book trying to grow tired, but I'm restless. I'm barely able to pay attention. David comes in and turns the lights off, the glow of my tablet and the moonlight giving the room a slight illumination. I switch it off and close my eyes, eventually falling asleep. I'm running through trees, and I can hear people yelling in the distance. I'm not sure what I'm running from, but I know that if they catch me, they'll kill me. I begin to see clearing up ahead. I sprint faster, but it's like I'm not moving at all. After what seems like an eternity, I break past the tree line into the clearing, but have to stop quickly. There's water. I lean over and look at my reflection. It's Chloe, staring back at me. I reach out to touch the water. When I do, I fall in, waking myself up. I lay in bed pondering the dream, but as time passes, so does the dream and I'm forgetting it. I toss and turn, wanting a glass of water, but trying to ignore it. After laying for an hour, listening to David snore, I decide it's time to get that water. I walk down the stairs, straight into the kitchen. I grab a glass from the cabinet, fill it with water, and think about what my dream means. Is she somehow trapped? I haven't really taken the time to try to understand why I'm seeing her. I decide to go back to the mirror. I see my reflection. I go closer, inspecting it. It is my own. As I'm looking, I see a handprint in the same location as before. It was her. She was trying to tell me she's here. I press my hand to the glass over the handprint. As I do, Chloe appears as my reflection. I take her in, and she is beautiful. I look at her face, and her lips curl into a smile. But she begins to look sinister. Her hand moves and comes through the mirror, grabbing my wrist and pulling me towards her. She grabs at me with her other hand, and I'm dragged through the mirror, thrown into a black void. As I turn around, I see she's climbing through the mirror. I get up and run, trying to catch her before she climbs through, but I'm too late. I body slam into the mirror. It's solid. 
I watch in horror as she composes herself, turns around, and looks into the mirror, myself looking back. I watch as I fix my clothes and hair, a light turning on from the stairs and David coming down. I see us talking, but I can't hear anything on this side of the glass. We kiss and David walks away, heading back up the stairs. I look in the mirror one last time, the sinister face again, but this time it's on me. Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany, two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sisterstitious and it's about to get spooky. We would like to start off this episode by saying that the Myrtles Plantation has been the most suggested by our listeners, but it is very important not to romanticize these plantation owners and the plantation itself. As we go through this episode, it is crucial that you keep in mind that Mississippi River plantations were places of extreme cruelty and deprived enslaved residents of even their basic necessities. Men, women, and children were forced to work in unbearable conditions without adequate food and water, along with a constant threat of violence at any given moment. They lived in small, crowded shacks that did not protect them from the environmental elements, wore clothing that was cheap, and many did not even have shoes. Many enslaved residents who lived on these plantations had already been separated from their families, and those who had not were living in continuous fear that they would be ripped apart from those they loved most. Random brutal attacks by masters and overseers were common, and those that were not being attacked were forced to witness it. Some enslaved men and women would even be forced to engage in sex to impregnate the woman in order to gain more free labor for the master. These human beings were essentially living in a torture chamber, all while maintaining and sustaining their master's exorbitant lifestyle. While we will discuss a number of families who owned the Myrtles through the years and their contributions to the hauntings, Do not forget that they inflicted human suffering on thousands of men, women, and children. Now, since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we're going to begin. General David Bradford was born in New Jersey in 1755 and later moved to Washington, Pennsylvania, where he was known as a prominent lawyer. He lived with his wife, Elizabeth Porter, and his five children. Their home in Pennsylvania was built in 1788 and is still known today as an architectural masterpiece. Trouble began for Bradford when he got involved and became one of the leaders in the Whiskey Rebellion, forcing him to flee south to escape being arrested. He made his way down the Mississippi and landed in Spanish-owned Louisiana where he purchased 650 acres of land in St. Francisville. It was his hope that he could escape from life up north and build a prosperous plantation with the land he purchased. Bradford would first name his plantation Richland, but later changed to Laurel Grove. The building of the plantation started in 1794, and construction first began on a smaller temporary home that would house his family until their main home was completed. Bradford went back up to Washington, Pennsylvania to gather his family and move them down to Laurel Grove where they would start a new life. After arriving, the Bradfords had three more daughters, Eliza Bradford, Sarah Matilda Bradford, and Octavia Ursula Bradford. Since indigo was a popular crop to grow in this area, it was the original choice for the Bradfords, but after a massive bug infestation killed the crop, he was forced to turn to cotton. Feeling the need to continue working as a lawyer, Bradford left the plantation for four months and went to New Orleans, leaving his wife in charge. Wives of plantation owners were commonly put in charge of running all aspects of plantation life, since many of these men traveled for long periods of time. It tended to be an extremely hard undertaking for these women, since most of them were taught skills of etiquette and homemaking, not the skills to run an entire business. With the running of the plantation came the task of carrying out the punishment of those who worked on the land. In order for the plantation to thrive, the crop had to thrive, 
and masters would do whatever they believed necessary to make that happen, using extreme measures of discipline if they felt their workers were out of line. Clearly, Bradford believed in his wife to uphold all these tasks, and it was stated in several letters that he had trust in Elizabeth's ability to maintain Laurel Grove's prosperity. David Bradford later died in 1808, and Elizabeth was given ownership of the land, purchasing it for $8,000. Clark Woodruff, who fought in the War of 1812, was living in the area with his own law practice when he met one of the Bradfords' daughters, Sarah Matilda. They were married at Laurel Grove on November 19, 1817, and after they returned from their honeymoon, they took over the plantation to help Elizabeth, Sarah's mother. They later had three children, twins named James and Cornelia Gale, and another daughter named Mary Octavia. It is here where one of the Myrtle's most famous legends began. It is said that the Woodruffs had a house slave named Chloe, who worked extremely close with the family, especially the children. It is estimated that she was 12 to 14 years old at the time, and some versions of her story describe her as a mistress to Woodruff, which only means that she was repeatedly raped by him, not that she was engaging in anything romantic or consensual. Chloe had been known to put her ear on the door of the gentleman's parlor to try to listen in on conversations, hoping for advances on information that could help her or others who worked for the family. One day, she had been caught by Woodruff, and it was ordered for her ear to be cut off, along with being banished from the house and instead to work in the kitchen. In order to hide her ear, it was said that she started wearing a green turban. Working in the main house was a coveted position as a slave, since many house slaves were given better living conditions and didn't have to endure miserable outdoor working environments. Chloe came up with a plan that she believed could get her back into good graces with the Woodruffs and earn her spot back in the main house. Mary Octavia had a third birthday coming up, and Chloe had planned to make her birthday cake. She decided to put poisonous oleander in the batter in hopes that it would make the children sick. But her plan wasn't actually to harm the Woodruff children. It was so that she could be given the opportunity to cure the family back to good health with hopes she would regain her position in the home. Unfortunately for Chloe, she put in too much oleander, which caused Sarah Matilda and her children to get extremely sick. Worried that they wouldn't survive, Chloe ended up telling others in the kitchen what she had done and word got out about her plan. A mob of both black and white men took her down to the river, hung her in a tree, and threw her body into the Mississippi. Chloe's ghost is known to be one of the more active spirits in the Myrtles today, but we will get into more specifics later in the episode. While some of the legends say that Sarah Matilda and her children actually died from the poisoning of the cake, documents show that Sarah Matilda actually died at the age of 25 in 1823 of yellow fever. Only a year later, 12-year-old James would succumb to the deadly disease, and following shortly after was his sister Cornelia Gale. Elizabeth Bradford not only had to deal with the grievances of losing her daughter and two grandchildren in such a short period of time, but many of her other children suddenly passed away over the next few years as well. Elizabeth Bradford died in 1830, leaving Woodruff and his only surviving daughter, Mary Octavia, alone. Perhaps too heartbroken or feeling that running the plantation was too much, he left Laurel Grove with his daughter and moved to Covington, Louisiana, where he was appointed judge in District D. When he left the plantation to be managed by a caretaker, it is estimated that he had around 450 field slaves and 30 house slaves. Laurel Grove was sold to Ruffin Gray Sterling for $46,853 in 1834. Ruffin Gray Sterling was from Scottish descent and inherited a great deal of wealth when his father died. He married a woman named Catherine Cobb, who was actually underage at the time of their marriage. The Sterlings held ownership of many pieces of property, which included Ruffin's late mother's plantation, which included 1,300 acres of land. When the Sterlings bought Laurel Grove, they did not move in right away since they worked to massively restore the main house. The Sterlings were the ones to change the name of Laurel Grove to the Myrtles Plantation, adding 5,000 acres of land, including 500 field slaves and 50 house slaves. It was also the work of the Sterlings that many admire about the Myrtles today. Their renovation doubled the size of the house, expanding the size of many of the rooms. 
they traveled to France and filled their home with exquisite details and lavish decorations. They added the famous cast iron siding with scrolled vine and great patterns to the veranda to match the style of many of the buildings seen in New Orleans, which gives the home its classic Creole cottage look. Plaster ceiling medallions were also installed along the grand chandeliers. The chandelier in the foyer came from the castle in France, weighing up to 300 pounds. Also seen in the foyer is wallpaper that used 12 sheets of extremely fragile and expensive eggshell paper that was layered to create the design seen today. They also combined the ladies' and gentlemen's parlor by removing the hallway in between and installing a pocket door that would open up the space into a grand ballroom for their impressive parties. It was here that evidence was discovered hinting towards the Sterlings experiencing some paranormal activity. Many of the updates Miss Sterling included were used in purpose to ward off evil. The front door of the home has hand-painted glass in a design that was purposefully etched, keeping evil spirits from entering the home. Keyholes in some of the doors were installed upside down to confuse spirits in order to deter them. Packets of salt were placed in the windows, and even some of the medallions and chandeliers were designed to watch over each section of the room. For example, the chandelier in the day room has four cherubs facing each corner of the room, and the medallion above it is engraved with four nuns. The Sterlings had nine children, with only one child, Mary Ann, being born at the Myrtles. Their family would not escape tragedy, though. Many of their children passed away at young ages. Clarence Sterling died at 13, Ruffin Gray Sterling at five months old, and Ruffin Sterling III at one. In 1852, one of the Sterling's daughters, Sarah Mulford, married a man named William Winter, and her father, Ruffin Sterling, died only two years later from tuberculosis. If this family didn't already experience enough losses, only a few years later, the Myrtles would be devastated from the Civil War. With the Mississippi being so close, it was extremely easy for Union soldiers to access the area, burning and ransacking many of the other plantations to the ground. Although the Myrtles wasn't burned, Union soldiers still made their way to the property and raided the home. All of Mary Cobb's fortunes was in Confederate money, so once the war ended, they were ultimately worthless, and with slavery being outlawed, the plantation could no longer sustain itself and the family. Needing help with the plantation, she turned to her son-in-law, William Winter. Sarah Mulford and William Winter did not live at the Myrtles right away. They first lived on a plantation in Clinton, Louisiana, called Gantmore, and had a daughter there. Then they moved to the west side of the Mississippi to another plantation called Arboroth. They had three more children there, a son and two daughters, one being Kate Lyle. Like most of the families in this story, despair would soon hit claiming another life of a small child. Kate Lyle contracted yellow fever in 1861 at only three years old. It is believed that her parents took her to the Myrtles to recover, since they weren't living there yet at this time. Unfortunately, there wasn't much that could be done for little Kate since she had progressed into serious sickness. Here is where another legend started. The Winters became desperate for a cure. Hearing about how voodoo had healed many others who were sick, they turned to a voodoo priestess named Cleo in hopes that she could save little Kate. Cleo entered the young child's bedroom and performed the ritual believed to save her. After she was done, she exited the room and assured everyone that Kate would be better by morning. Unfortunately, Kate Lyle did not get any better by morning and another innocent soul was taken too young by yellow fever. This legend seems to have two very different endings, one being that William Winter was enraged that Cleo promised the healing of his daughter only for her to die. So he had Cleo hung. The second one is that Cleo was able to escape the wrath of Mr. Winter with help from others who also practiced voodoo. About four years later, the Winters officially moved into the Myrtles and had two more sons. But only two years later, William Winter's debt was too great and he had to declare bankruptcy. The plantation was sold to the New York Warehouse and Security Company for a short time, and the Winters were able to regain ownership of the home once again. Besides the financial issues, the Winters had a relatively normal life over the next few years, and it would seem like all would be well for the family. That was until the fateful evening of January 26, 1871. William Winter was downstairs with two of his sons teaching lessons when someone approached their home on horseback. 
When the stranger approached the house, he shouted to speak with Mr. Winter. Since it was very dark, William was unable to see who the man was, so he stepped out onto the veranda, stating that he was Mr. Winter. Suddenly, the man on horseback shot William and took off. After being shot, it is believed that he went into the house to try to find his wife, going up the stairs and dying in his wife's arms on the 17th step. After the death of William, Sarah was completely heartbroken. She barely left her room, unable to cope with her loss, and never left the Myrtles until her death in 1878. Her mother, who had lived at the plantation for 30 years, died two years after her daughter. After Mary Cobb Sterling passed away, her son Stephen bought the Myrtles with his wife. They had two small daughters, and even though they tried their hardest to restore the property, they could not manage the financial burden, and they were forced to sell it. Stephen Sterling sold the Myrtles to Oren D. Brooks in 1886, but he sold it shortly in 1891 to Harrison Milton Williams and Fanny Lintott Harrelson Williams. They were another set of buyers who had hoped to restore and replenish the property, but they too had tragedy looming, ready to strike. In 1909, Harrison Williams died and Fanny became head of the household. In 1920, one of her sons ended up drowning in the Mississippi. Two murders would take place at the Myrtles during Fanny's ownership. One was a caretaker who lived in a cabin on the property who was murdered during a robbery. The other murder was her brother who was living in the home with Fanny after the death of her first son and her husband. He was also killed during a robbery. In 1948, Fanny turned over the plantation to her son, Surgit, but he sold it only two years later. Marjorie Munson was a wealthy widow from Oklahoma who bought the Myrtles. It was Munson who first started reporting strange happenings in her home. She said there were unexplainable sounds and smells, objects moving, and full-bodied apparitions, one being a woman in a black gown and black veil. She decided to write a song about one of the ghosts she had been seeing, and she decided to meet with a composer from Hollywood named Delore Machad. They ended up falling in love in the process and worked together to restore the mansion. Being a collector of antiques, they turned the old carriage house into an antique shop. They held recitals in the home, opening it up to the public for the first time. Along with Mr. and Miss Robin Ward, bought the home together to work diligently in repairing the property. The home desperately needed foundation and plaster work. They completed countless projects, working extremely hard to bring the mansion back to life. In 1978, the house was entered into the National Register of Historic Places, and by this point, a man named John Pierce had purchased the Myrtles. He owned it for three years and held historic tours, even letting guests stay the night. Francis Kerman and Jim Myers bought the home from John in 1980. Frances had always dreamed of owning a plantation home and turning it into a bed and breakfast. She revamped the house and made changes here and there to better suit overnight guests. Frances also turned the antique shop into a tavern and named it Spirits. She felt this was fitting since Frances noticed very early on that the home was haunted. Kerman also added four suites behind the carriage house. They are still there today and they are called the garden rooms. She also added a blue bridge to the pond area in honor of Monet, as well as a gazebo. Kerman ended up selling the property after 10 years, stating that the hauntings were too much for her to deal with. She wrote a memoir about her time at the Myrtles called The Myrtles Plantation, The True Story of America's Most Haunted House. The book has been scrutinized by some, saying that her stories about some of the paranormal encounters, especially encounters with the ghost of Chloe or Cleo, was fabricated for attention. In 1992, the Myrtles was sold to John and Tita Moss, who had two young boys at the time. They made many improvements to the home, such as installing central heat and air, doubling the size of the carriage house restaurant, which was later turned into a new restaurant called 1796, after a fire damaged the building beyond repair in 2017. They also added four cottages for extra sleeping arrangements for guests and a 5,000 square foot patio to enjoy meals and the outdoors. The Mosses have also had their own share of paranormal experiences, stating that when they first moved in, Tita heard her name being called in familiar voices such as her husband and a childhood friend. Most owners of a haunted house would probably feel weary about its resident ghosts, but Tita refers to them as guardian angels. Shortly after the family moved in, Tita claims it's voices from spirits who told her to check on her 10-month-old son one afternoon while he was napping. 
Instead of finding him in his room, she saw him only a few feet away from an unfenced pond, heading towards the water. Panic-stricken, she raced towards him, trying to reach him before he fell in. But a sudden feeling of calmness overtook her, and she was able to get to him before he landed in the water. The same voice then spoke again, saying that her family would always be kept safe while living at the Myrtles. Heading into the Myrtles today, you are greeted with a winding drive accompanied by a plethora of native plants, flowers, and myrtle trees, which bird the final name of this plantation. As you approach the home, the expanded Creole raised cottage painted white with seafoam colored floor to ceiling shutters, front doors, and the famous matching grillwork has awed visitors from all over the world. Known as one of the last three grand party houses, the 107-foot-long front veranda carries you into a home that still holds its original floors, doors, windows, mantles, and design from the Sterling's days. As you enter the foyer, it is here you can still see the famous wallpaper and chandelier installed by the Sterling's. And to the left of the foyer, you will find the French room, along with a guest room known as the Bradford Suite. To the right of the foyer, you will find the ladies' parlor, separated from the gentlemen's parlor by way of pocket doors. Behind the ladies' parlor is the dining room, and when you cross over, you enter the game room. In between the two, you will find a back steep staircase that leads up to the second floor, which holds more guest rooms. Entering the second floor from the main entrance's staircase, you will see a large open west gallery that was primarily used as a classroom or chapel area. Connected to the West Gallery is the Clark Woodruff Suite to the left and two rooms to the right, the John Leake Room and the Fannie Williams Room. If you go up the back staircase, you will have access to two more guest rooms, the William Winter Room and the Ruffin Sterling Room. When entering out the back veranda, you are greeted by a 5,000 square foot patio with the restaurant and garden room to the left and the general store to the right. The caretaker's cottage is further back behind the general store and Moss has installed four cottages further back to the left. While the history of the plantation might draw some to its doors, the real lure that brings most of its 60,000 annual visitors is the hauntings that may have claimed to witness, and even document through videos and photographs. While most photography is prohibited throughout the house, the foyer is fully open for any photos you might want to take. In this room, you will find the infamous haunted mirror. Handprints have shown up on the mirror, even after being continuously cleaned. Previous owners have gone as far as replacing the glass, but the handprints have still shown up. As a final effort to understand what was going on with the mirror, it was professionally studied with no logical evidence found for the appearance of these mysterious prints. Some visitors have even seen apparitions of one of the previous owner's wives and their daughters reflected in mirror's glass. The haunting is believed to come from an old superstition that many held after a loved one died. After the death of someone in the home, it was common to leave their body out for a few days to be observed by traveling close family and friends. It was believed that while the body laid in the home, the soul of the departed would search for somewhere to stay. Mirrors were feared as places they would trap these souls, so it was very common for them to be covered up so that they wouldn't entice wandering souls. But many feel that this mirror had possibly been missed during one of the many deaths that took place in the Myrtles and trapped some souls behind its glass. The staircase is also known to be a very haunted location in the home. Footsteps walking up the stairs have been heard by many, with claims that they will frequently stop on the 17th step. Could this be the residual footsteps heard from Mr. Winter heading up the stairs to find his wife after he was shot? A full-bodied apparition of a lady in black has been seen in the French room, possibly a former widow searching for her departed husband. Many who have stayed in the Bradford suite behind the French room have frequently been awakened around 2 a.m. to sounds of a large party happening in the nearby parlors and phantom piano playing from the piano sitting right outside of the guest room. Inside the suite, bed pillows have been tugged or fluffed by an invisible force, along with the closet doors opening and shutting on their own. Throughout the rest of the first level, young children have been seen wearing clothing from different eras looking into the home through the windows. Photos from outside of the home have also captured apparitions of these children peering out from the inside of the home. On the veranda outside of the gentleman's parlor, some sources have stated that you can still see the original blood stain from where Winter was shot. On the opposite side of the home, where the game room sits, a photo of Chloe's apparition can be viewed as you exit onto the patio. 
1992, Miss Moss was taking photos of the property for insurance purposes. After the photos were developed, she discovered one that captured something very interesting. Standing in between the original Bradford home and the main house was the apparition of what appeared to be a young slave woman wearing a turban. The sighting of the home can be seen through her, as if translucent. Mrs. Moss sent the photo to be authenticated by National Geographic, who confirmed that it did indeed appear to be an apparition of a 19th century slave. It was also sent to a researcher, who enlarged the photo and measured the apparition, which completely matched human dimensions. He also found the images of two small children sitting on the roofline of the house. Tita Moss was certain no children that age were on the property at the time. Not to mention, accessing the roof was impossible. Interestingly enough, once the original photo was copied, the apparition of the children disappeared. Upstairs guests have witnessed their own list of paranormal activity. Furniture is heard being pushed around the upper foyer late at night, waking guests. It is common for the furniture to appear to be back in its original location when checked on, but upon closer inspection, some pieces had actually moved from where they were sitting. The rough and sterling room used to be the family's nursery, so hearing children laughing and playing shouldn't be surprising. As guests are laying in bed at night, a blue mass has been seen hovering above them along with associated feelings of being tucked in. A more sinister paranormal experience that some guests have endured is while sleeping, their bed will violently shake as if possessed. Today, you can still see the deep gouge marks around the feet of the bed which shows you just how aggressive this shaking can get. Those who have stayed in the John Leake room have encounters with the spirit of a Confederate soldier. It is believed that during the war, an injured soldier arrived at the Myrtles, desperately needing his leg tended to. He was hidden away in the John Leake room for two months to heal. Men have awoken from extremely detailed dreams about fighting in the war, and able to include specific descriptions and facts one could only know if they had actually been there and fought. Women have seen the full-bodied apparition of the man staring at them while they sleep, which has frightened enough of them to check out early. The last apparition we will discuss in the main house is the spirit of the house slave Chloe. Shared by many that they have seen her and her green turban standing over them at night holding a candle. Some have reported that she looked like a young woman and others have reported that she looked older. With the legend of Chloe being a teenager at the time of her death, some have speculated that the older woman could be the apparition of Cleo, who was the woman sent to use voodoo to try and heal Kate Lyle Winter. Along with the apparition of Chloe, it is shared that guests will commonly lose one earring, which they contribute to her since she only had one ear. Author Taya Miles found many problems with these legends and their supposed apparitions. The following are excerpts we took from her book, The Haunted South, Dark Tourism and Memories of Slavery from the Civil War Era, where she examines popular sites and tours in the South and goes into detail about how these haunted tales routinely appropriate and skew African-American history to produce representations of slavery for commercial gain. The stories of Chloe and Cleo are fundamentally stories of violence against Black women. As a ghost, Chloe holds characteristics that thicken her subjection and cultural memory. She is given two of the most prominent negative stereotypes of African-American women, the Jezebel type and the Mammy. Rather than seeing black women of a system that stole their personal right to bodily integrity, white slaveholding society labeled black women as Jezebels, manipulative sexual temptresses who brought on and deserved their fate. It is important to remember that enslaved black women were extremely vulnerable. They were easily raped and had no protections. They were not only forced to have sex with their masters, but even passed around to relatives and family friends. Along with the Jezebel, the Mammy stereotype is often portrayed as dark-skinned, portly, and older in age. Managing the white household with skill and loving the white mistress's children as her own, her supreme charge in life, the charge she gladly answered, was to care for the white family, suppressing her own needs and the needs of her black children. This is the scene of the rural plantation, idyllic and paternal, where jolly, dark, and notably female servants tend to every person's need. The need for care, the need for comfort, the need for romance, and the need to know that racial threat endemic to the plantation where the black slaves are held against their will is fully contained. Cleo, who was seen in Legends as a voodoo priestess, is another reoccurring stereotype of African-American women. The voodoo priestess gives what every good slave ghost story requires. 
Voodoo lends an exotic quality to these stories and also portrays spiritual danger for non-adherents, who see the religion as strange and dangerous. Cleo represents the eroticization of Black religious practices at the Myrtles and in broader American society. With no factual evidence that either of these women actually existed, their legends should purely be viewed as controlling images of Black womanhood. As we move out of the house, apparitions have been seen all around the grounds of the plantation. Children, women, and men have all been seen wearing clothing from a different century. Some visitors have even interacted with them, believing they were people as alive as them. An older man in overalls is the most common apparition seen on the grounds. He is believed to be one of the previous caretakers of the plantation, and has even been seen at the entrance of the Myrtles, shooing off visitors coming in by telling them it's closed. If you do choose to stay at the Myrtles, it seems that no room or outbuilding is safe from the paranormal. Tens of thousands of visitors stop by each year, relishing in the beauty the plantation still holds to this day. But behind the beauty is a deep darkness, one that continues to tighten its grip around its malevolent antebellum history. Hey guys, Holly and Brittany are back. Woo! Woo! What's up, everyone? <laughs> okay, I like really hate that we just wooed in this episode again, like we did in episode 10. I promise we're not woo girls. <laughs> I'm a woo girl. Don't let her fool you. Um, but yeah, we're back. We had a nice little break. I hope you guys had a break. Um, from something in your life. Well, it was also kind of spring break, right? Yeah, I guess spring break could have taken place during that time. Um, but yeah, we're so excited to be bringing out new episodes for you guys. Uh, I would say starting a new season, but I'm not really sure yet if it's going to be a new season or it's just going to be episodes continued. One of the big changes that we are going to make, though, for Sister Sicious is instead of an episode coming out every week, we're going to have to change it to an episode every two weeks just because that's what works best for our family right now and really what is going to you know, keep us going with this. And being able to sustain it for you guys. Yeah, if um, if you're kind of a new listener, this is the first episode that you're listening to. Holly has two small children, and I have a full-time, very demanding job. So we definitely want to keep making content for you all, but also respecting our personal lives as well. Because it was getting a little podcast 24-7. Not that we don't love you guys, but we do have some stronger feelings towards our family. <laughs> Yeah, and we're not getting paid for it. So as much as we do love it, it's just, yeah, it was just too much to put out a full episode every single week. So there will be some weeks that we will put out an episode where that week normally we wouldn't. We're looking to create some extra episodes for our Patreon members. And once that's fully set up, we're going to give you guys all the information. And our website is being built by... The awesome person that created our cover art, Ben May. So once that's up and running too, we will let you know. And yeah, you ready to go deeper and get creepier with this episode or with this banter? Yeah, of course. So there was so much information in the episode itself. So we really don't have a lot that we're going to dig into. I just thought that it would be interesting to discuss some of the photos of the Myrtles that I sent Brittany. There are so many pictures on the internet of apparitions that were taken in this place. I mean, there's just tons and tons and tons of photos. We'll definitely post the photos that I'm talking about right now. But if you guys just go online and search, you know, Myrtles Plantation haunted photos, so many will show up. I don't think I've ever seen that many pictures of apparitions in my entire life. Well, in case you didn't know, this is also one of America's most haunted houses. <laughs> yes. But besides, um, I think a few of the other places we did, this one is definitely on almost every most haunted list in the United States. So I think maybe there's something going on. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about what some people captured. So love ghost photos. 
Yes, they're pretty interesting. Um, so the first photo that I sent to you, Brittany, was the one of the window and the shutter. So something that we talked about in the episode was how frequently people would see ghost children peering outside of the windows of the myrtles and how many like that that many people have been able to capture them too like so many people have been able to capture them in photos so I want you to tell me what you see in this picture Brittany so there's two girls who are taking a selfie their faces are blurred out but in the background with a big yellow circle just in case you miss it is a window and it looks like a young child, maybe a girl wearing a dress, is looking out of the window towards the two girls who are actually taking the selfie. And there's a pretty good defined um, structure of her face. Like you can see the outline, you can see where her eyes, her nose, and her mouth are. And what's crazy is that you can still see the curtain behind it. And normally you'd be like, well, maybe it's a reflection of something on the porch into the window, but nothing else is reflecting in the window. And there's even a plant next to the window that would reflect that is not. So it's, there's definitely something there. Yeah, it's probably like one of the most defined photos of an apparition I think I've ever seen in my life. I mean, you can basically even see her part line and even like make out where her hands are placed, what her outfit could look like. I mean, it definitely is one of those photos of a girl from another century. I mean, her outfit definitely looks like it's from another century. And it, it really is just mind mind blowing, honestly. Yeah. And there's no way that it's like someone in a picture that's moving. Because sometimes I feel like there's pictures where you're like, oh, it's a ghost, but maybe the shutter speed just wasn't fast enough. So someone's moving and it looks like a blur. Like this person is standing still. Yeah. This child. Because yes, it's definitely yes. a child. It's a child. Very, very crazy. If I took that photo, I don't even know what I'd do with myself. Okay. Um, Brittany, why don't you describe the next photo that I sent you? So the next one is kind of in the foyer of the main house, and you can see the front doors and the stairs, and there's that special chandelier that we talked about, but underneath it, it's kind of what I was talking about with one of those movement photos. I'm going to turn the brightness up on my computer so I can really see it. (laughs) But yeah, it looks like a smudge almost, if that makes sense. It doesn't look like there's a smudge on the camera because... Everything around the smudge is focused in, but it looks like someone was standing there and then moved. Yeah, it would it would definitely be a harder picture to tell what was going on without the context. So the woman who took this picture actually saw three apparitions of three children together with high knee socks. So she was able to get the high knee socks in the photo. Yeah. It looks like that. That's what it looks like. Yeah. It looks like the high knee socks. So while you really can't see much else in the picture, I mean, seeing an apparition and then, you know, snapping a photo and having some evidence is definitely wild. So I'm sure that woman was happy something back came back from that picture. Mm-hmm. And then the third picture I sent you was taken in the, I believe it's one of the parlors. So one of the gentlemen's parlors or women's, women's parlors. Um, I think so. It could be the French room. I'm not sure. But the photo was taken and there is a reflection in one of the mirrors. Now this is not Ooh. the haunted mirror that we discussed in the episode. This is a different mirror in a different house. <laughs> The renovation? No, this is a different mirror in a different room. I'm just not able to talk right now. Um, Okay, yeah. So this is a different mirror in a different room. And in the reflection, you can see something pretty dang wild. What can you see? It looks like a baby poking its head around a corner, maybe in a dress. But pretty high up off the ground. Yes. So that's good that you made that point high up off the ground. So when they took this picture, they accounted for everybody in the room. 
when they took it and after looking at looking inspecting the picture closer upon inspection of the photo closer I cannot talk um they saw what looks like a little girl which is what that looks like which is what it looks like I know you said baby but little girl and if you compare this girl to a picture of Kate Lyle Winter. They look eerily mm. similar. Um, and yes, it also looks like she is hovering off the ground, which is also crazy. Yeah, because, okay, that head size, too small to mm-hmm. be a grown adult. Yeah. Too small. Yep. And it almost looks like it would be the same little girl as the one in the window, the first picture. Hmm. Maybe. Any of those children, I guess, could be spirits at this plantation. So So guess what, guys? Another little ghost girl who's inviting you to play with her. Oh, yes. You'll get plenty of those if you visit the Myrtles, apparently. Um, which, to me, I don't know. A lot of the stories I read about the little ghost children really aren't that scary. You get similar stories like what we said at Asylum 49 of a little girl walks in with adults. Someone thinks that it's their child. The couple says, we don't have a child. And da-da-da. Someone realizes it's a ghost. <laughs> that's, that's... Da-da-da. It's true. That's what happens. So, yeah, those were just three of the photos that I thought were the best out of all of them. There are so many more out there. The most famous photo is the photo of Chloe on the plantation. Mm -hmm. You guys can look that up if you want to, but we are just not going to talk about that just because it was talked about so much in the episode itself. So, That's pretty much all I have. Um, Brittany, you had a very interesting fact that you wanted to share with me and everybody else. So yeah, so you know how I love to relate some pop culture references back to some other things when we look into these uh, different haunted places. So in Disneyland, in the Haunted Mansion, it has the uh, Greek revival that has the same wrought iron as the Myrtle's Plantation. However, Myrtle's Plantation is Creole Cottage, which I love because it makes me think of like cottage core. It's like Creole Cottage Core. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the similarities is the raw iron, and that's one of the things that Myrtle's Plantation is, of course, widely known for, aside from ghosts. But then it also mimics the uh, shutters, which is that deep seafoam green kind of. So it's just interesting to see how, whether it was on purpose or not, different aspects are similar. Yeah, I mean, looking at a picture of this, Um, haunted mansion at Disneyland so it's the buildings are completely different in Disneyland and Disney World for the haunted mansion Um, but the one in Disneyland looks yes the the iron siding and the shutters look identical Um, but the actual style of the house at Disneyland is more Greek revival which is you know that was kind of the more popular architecture type for plantations anyway so that's probably why they went with that when they were designing the haunted mansion at disneyland but absolutely looking at the two photos like there's just no way that they did not use the myrtles for that inspiration which is crazy so it's awesome Brittany, that you saw those similarities because i would have never thought to look that up thanks holly I try. (laughs) So that is all we have for you guys today. Um, We know that the episode itself was pretty long, so we wanted to keep the banter short and sweet. Um, Once again, like we said at the beginning of the episode, this was highly, highly requested, which is why we did it. So if you requested it, thank you for giving us some place to look up. And if you have any other places that you want for us to cover, we would love to. We love getting suggestions. We love hearing from you guys. So if you want, hit us up. Oh, yeah. And if it's preferably in the southeast, Holly and I could probably go to these places. Yes. Um, I'm actually going to the Driscoll 
in June. So I'm super excited about that. I never thought yeah, that would that's happen. Awesome. So Brittany will be at the Stanley in June and I will be at the Driscoll in June. So of course we will talk about our experiences at those places with you guys 100%. So yes, any suggestions would be great. Yeah. All right. Bye guys. Love you. <laughs> bye guys. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sister Stitious. This is Sister. It's a bucky Halloween.